Hello and welcome to This is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a month-by-month look at the modern rock charts. I'm your host, Will Westerkow, and today we're talking about July 1993. Joining me today is my special guest, Ken Stringfellow. Hi, Ken. Howdy, howdy, Will. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Ken, you have uh, been involved in a lot of music over the years, but perhaps you are best well known as the co-founder and co-guitarist and co-singer of The Posies. And co-writer. All of our songs were co-written. We did a Lennon and McCartney kind of split for every song. And co-producer, actually. Oh, really? But yeah, we produced our albums with the producers we worked with. So John, myself, and the producer each got a co-production credit. Cool. We're definitely going to be talking about the Posies later in this episode because the Posies are charting on the modern rock charts. But I will say really briefly, when I gave you the list of bands that charted during this month, you mentioned that you worked with or toured with or knew in some capacity, like, I don't know, half the list <laughs> that I gave you. It's like eight or 10 bands, which is pretty amazing. You know, it's been the 30th anniversary of our biggest song on the modern rock charts, which is really our biggest charting song of any kind in the U.S., so I was looking at those charts as they came up this summer and on the chart, I go, man, we played with like 80% of the bands on this chart that year, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. We were quite busy. Do you miss being that busy? <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough question to answer, actually. In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I mean, it was our breakthrough record. Our first tours of Europe happened with this record. I mean, those kind of firsts are pretty magical, and I totally enjoyed it, I have to say. And I am living at a slower pace these days, and I'm absolutely okay with that as well. So I accept how things are. Yeah, good. We're going to kick things off with a song from the lower reaches of the modern rock charts. This one hit number 29 in July of 1993. Here's our mystery achievement. See if you can figure out what it is. That was it, the mystery achievement for July 1993. We'll let you know what song that was at the end of the episode, so stick around. But for now, let's just jump into the upper reaches of the charts. We've got one new number one for the month, and this is from Tears for Fears. And I have to say, I'm very surprised to see that they're back. You know, I I wasn't hearing them at the time. My alternative rock station was not playing Tears for Fears. So I didn't really know that they were still sticking around in 1993. Well, they were kind of sticking around. <laughs> That's right. There's several asterisks and footnotes after that. I will say this, that of all those bands that were on that chart, you know, we were all doing like the festivals and stuff like that. You know, radio stations were hosting in the States, for example. Mm -hmm. We were playing with a lot of the bands that were on the chart at that time. But Tears for Fears was nowhere in that promotion cycle. I never saw them around. They never played. I don't know if they even did a tour for this record. I, you, if you asked me, I, I wouldn't be able to, to tell you. And I, I didn't know this song either, actually. It, it wasn't on my radar at all at that time. And imagine, you know, we were really involved in what was going on in music. And somehow this was in an alternate universe. Interesting. This band was formed in Bath, England in 1981. The core of the band is Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith. 
And before Tears for Fears, they were in a band called Graduate, or maybe Graduate. I'm not really sure. I've never heard anyone say the name of this band before. But I thought it would be fun just to throw in a quick clip of a song from Graduate's 1980 album, Acting My Age. Here's a song called Elvis Should Play Ska. Catch me if you can. I won't record no backhander. Ask me who I am. Tell me you're the pop commander. Elvis should play sky. Elvis should play sky. In the U.S., Tears for Fears are remembered mostly for their second album, 1985's Songs from the Big Chair, which had three huge singles, two of which hit number one on the Hot 100. What they're less remembered for is their re-recording of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. They re-recorded it as Everybody Wants to Run the World, and it was used as a charity single for something called Sport Aid, which was a fundraiser to help end African famine. Sport Aid, not Gatorade. No, it's similar. I think it was kind of like a jogathon. I think they got a bunch of people to to say they were going to run laps or run somewhere and and raise money that way. So, in some sense the title makes sense. Everybody wants to run the world, but it really just comes off like everybody wants to be in charge of the world, which is what the, <laughs> the original title was anyway. Yeah, they were already there. So, yes. Yeah. Of course everybody wants to rule the world. Yeah, everybody uh, it could also mean they want to measure it. That's true. That's true. With a graduated measuring device. <laughs> yes. Yes. So anyway, after 1991 Sowing the Seeds of Love album, Kurt Smith quit the band. And as it turns out, Roland Orzabal was the band's primary songwriter anyway. So, you know, I'm sure it wasn't great for everybody involved, but he was able to just continue without Kurt. And he also stepped into the producer role as well. So in 1993, the band by which I mean Orzabal and some other guys not named Kurt, released Elemental. And I was also surprised by this. This was only their fourth album. And that seems really weird to me. 11 years in, it's only on their fourth album. But the first single, Break It Down Again, became the band's final top 40 hit in the U.S. Not in the U.K., where they managed to crack the top 40 as late as 2005. But... Break It Down Again became a number one hit on the modern rock charts, and it spent three weeks on top. And here it is. song something he's singing to himself as like i gotta motivate myself to rise from these ashes or is this a song that he's singing to his ex-partner saying good luck rising from your own ashes Uh, i couldn't quite tell if this was written in the first person or an imagined voice you know speaking sort of for his partner in a sense yeah i'm not sure either i've looked through the lyrics but you know it's 
vague enough, or I'm just not good enough at interpreting poetry. I, it could be either way. Yeah, it's it sets an interesting precedent, you know, as someone who's songwriting and bandmate partner quit my band twice in two different periods of time, including the current time, I feel for the guy, you know? Mm -hmm. I haven't listened to the whole rest of the record, and I know that there was like a, a song that he wrote that was really a, a what we would call now a diss track. Mm, yeah. That it was really quite pointed at his ex-partner. But I would say that even a song like this, which is sort of going for the high road, I'm sure that that relationship was the main thing on his mind. It's It's so intense to have a partnership like that. And I can totally relate. I mean, I can't say that my partnership in the Posies was like theirs in Tears for Fears, but I'm sure there were common elements. In a way, you're, you're closer to that person and you're sharing more of your time than you are with your conventional life partner, like spouse or something like that a lot of the time. Sure. It's a big hole, I have to say. Yeah, I imagine. I guess on the bright side then, maybe... In 2000, Kurt Smith rejoined the group, and they've been recording and touring sporadically ever since. I read that Break It Down Again is just about the only song from this album that the band still plays. Kurt Smith likes this one, doesn't necessarily like the rest of the album. And uh, the band released their seventh album, The Tipping Point, in 2022. So they <laughs> they continue to be not very prolific, but they're still putting out work. And I was amazed, actually, it seems like they've been touring. It seems like their tours are very successful. Like people are really, uh, have hung on to the, you know, the interest. And maybe that fact that they didn't overstay their welcome has made people more, more endeared to them in a sense. Sure. Tears for Fears is going to be on top for the, the rest of July. So no room for other number ones. <laughs> but uh, our next band, the Posies, managed to make it all the way to number four. Mm -hmm. And Ken, this is your band. Never more so than it is now. <laughs> yeah, and so I don't know if I'm the right person to talk about this. I read that you formed in 1986 in Bellingham, Washington. You and your schoolmate, John Auer, is that right? Yeah, so we actually, I would say, really we formed in 1987, just to be more precise. But we had already been in bands together going back all the way to when I was in a freshman in high school and John was in eighth grade. I will say that as a, you know, however old he was at that time, 13 or whatever, he was a mind-blowing guitar player. I mean, hmm. truly a prodigy. And so he was kind of the best musician in town at that point. And so my friends and I, who had this band that we'd been kicking around already ourselves since middle school, thought it would be a great idea to bring this kid in who could play anything. Yeah. We didn't really do a lot. We just kind of jammed in the garage and we never played any gigs or anything, but it allowed John and I to meet. And so we had a rapport. And then the next year when he came to high school, we had some classes together and started making music all the time. And we had access to a studio because John and his dad had put together a studio in their house. This is the place we ended up making the Posey's first album. And John was quite adept at already at recording, you know, at age 14, 15, it was really a, a whiz kid. And we just made music every day, all through high school. Wow. It's pretty incredible. And so that was that outlier thing they talk about, you put in your 10,000 hours, and we probably did it long before anybody heard of us. Yeah. So in 1989, the Posey signed to DGC, and mm -hmm. they released their major label debut, Dear 23, the following year. Mm-hmm. 
One song from that album, Golden Blunders, charted on the Modern Rock Charts at number 17, and I read was later covered by Ringo Starr, which is kind of fun. Yeah. And in 1993, the band released Frosting on the Beater. Mm -hmm. I read that the album was originally submitted to the label under a different title, and it was sent back with a directive to add some hits. Is that true? It's kind of true. It's it. I mean, it's true that our idea was to call the album Eclipse at that time. And Gary Gersh, our A&R guy, and was also A&R for Nirvana and Sonic Youth, etc. He didn't really say, go write some hits. He said, I feel like the album's not done. I feel like it's missing something. We're not in a hurry. Make the best album you can make. Write some more songs, see what happens, and let's record a few more tunes. It was really like that. It wasn't really like this big sinister thing. I mean, sure. I think people always try and make these tales into a kind of fairy tale with the evil king wizard of the record company and the innocent Snow White of the band. And it, that's an exaggeration. I mean, Geffen was very, very cool as a label. And our contract also said that we could do whatever we want. We weren't sent into the mines to mine for one more diamond, you know, or something like this. Sure. It was yeah. really more just like, think you've got some great songs. I feel like you should write a few more. Take your time. Let's see what we get and see if that inspires you. And it did inspire us because Dream All Day and Flavor of the Month, which was a single overseas, came out of that last round. And I think they were great additions to the record. Yeah, for sure. In between Dear 23 and Frosting on the Beater, our city, I mean, like, never mind 10, you know, <laughs> Bad Motor Finger, like, all these albums just were ruling the universe. And I think the bar got raised a lot higher. I think that our kind of quaint retro pop thing, even we didn't even really relate to it anymore. We'd seen too much touring and the world had changed. I think our previous records were a little bit too respectful of the past in a sense. And we needed to make a clean break okay. and do something that really sounded like us. And I think we achieved that. And it was our most successful record. So, Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a very strong record. Well, we're going to listen to the first single from Frosting on the Beater. This is Dream All Day. It hit number four on the modern rock charts, and it is the Posey's highest charting song. Here it is. I like it. I mean, it's one of those songs where I think you hear it the first time and it can get you on the first listen, which is not something I can say of every song on the charts. Most of our material is a little more layered. We do a lot of left turns in our chord progressions a lot of times and try and put something a little challenging in there. You know, we're big fans of XTC and XTC lyrically and musically especially Andy Partridge's compositions, always take a left turn. There's always something in there to kind of keep it from getting too predictable. But what's nice about Dream All Day is it's there's no left turn in it. It just comes out and it rocks. And that's something that we really needed, especially our previous record was very indulgent and had lots of left turns and lots of lyrical density and all this stuff. And 
we realized it was kind of like a wedding cake and you can't serve a wedding cake, you know, for every meal. Uh, you know, we wanted something a little bit more balanced as a presentation, shall we say. Sure. Yeah. Now, uh, one thing that stands out to me right away, if you heard the previous album, then I think Dream All Day and Frosting on the Beat are going to sound a little heavier than the earlier stuff. But if we compare this to other stuff that was going on in Seattle at the time or things that might be labeled as grunge, most of those other bands, they are very light on vocal harmonies, if if they have them at all. And uh, that's that's a big part of the Posey sound, whether it's like vocal interplay, kind of the back and forth of the chorus here, or whether you two are just singing, you know, harmonies at the same time. I mean, I guess you could call that a tribute to past music of the 60s, maybe, but like, I don't know. I mean, I think any time is the right time for vocal harmonies, frankly. Yeah. We were two lead singers singing all the time, pretty much together, and coming up with a vocal counterpart to the melody for each songwriter ensured that we were always kind of woven into each song. Mm -hmm. And guitar-wise, too, you know, I mean, there's a certain point in our career later where we kind of break away from the two guitars, bass and drums format, but I think for this period, it was totally crucial, and it's really like you know, the, the takes are, are very live in the studio. You know, we didn't have all the trickery that we have now to fix things. So the performances are really good. The one thing also I could say is that with Mike Musburger on drums, he and Matt Cameron are similar in a sense in that they're both really, really technically excellent musicians who don't beat you over the head, so to speak, with how technical they are. Mm -hmm. They can put an edge into what they do, but they're so precise and very much musicians, musicians. As far as the rest of the band goes, did you have pretty much the same lineup throughout the Posey's career, or was it basically you and John and a rotating cast of people? Yeah, it, it ended up being like that, I'm afraid. I likened it to like Steely Dan. You know, you had two people who were really, really into music production and, and songwriting and and hell, I mean, we didn't get along that well either. We were both so headstrong and picky in our individual ways too. But we had the the bond of the fact that, that the band was centered around our songs and singing and we kind of couldn't live with each other or without each other at that time. Mm -hmm. John and I made the first album, just the two of us. So he, he played drums and I played bass. And Dear 23 has Mike Musburger on drums and Rick Roberts on bass. And then he left... Dave Fox plays bass on Frosting on the Beater, and then he and Mike left, and then the next album, we have another rhythm section for two albums, and then the next two albums have another rhythm section, and so on and so on. I think the main issue is that the band was really John and my vision, and it was hard to accommodate everybody's wishes. We saw where we wanted to go, and we asked people to help us go there. And after a while, of course, they want to do more, you know, and I, and of course they do contribute. I mean, like, listen to Mike's drum parts. It's quite astonishing what he plays. However, I will say that that strange drum pattern that's in the verses is on John's demo. I mean, he essentially wrote that part. And, you know, the other part is we were really young and we were pretty terrible at psychology. I don't think that we managed the inevitable conflicts that come up with any project, including a creative one, and as dysfunctional as many musicians are, and we were, this was just worsened by the meat grinder of touring and also our relative immaturity. I mean, we were, I was only 24, John was probably 23 when this record came out, so we really didn't know that much about life. 
And that's the only regret I have is that I wish I could have known then what I know now about how to work with conflict because it's going to happen. And we didn't really know how to do it then. But that's just how it was, how you are at that age. Yeah. But at the same time, all this stuff is asked of you. You know, I mean, like signed to a major label. We were signed in 1989. I was just turning 21. And you're responsible, in a sense, for a multi-hundred thousand dollar project that's supposed to make everybody rich. <laughs> I can't even imagine. I could barely tie my shoelaces at 21. So, Well, neither could I. I mean, that's the weird thing. But I think that we did our best to rise to the occasion in terms of the music. But I can say that deepening your relationship with yourself, which is really hard to do when you're young, because like I said, your development is still in progress, mm -hmm. of course, makes you, I think, a better creator. And so that you luckily, hopefully you have that to draw upon when you're older. One of the other downsides of this world, of course, is this bubble where everybody wants something from you. Everybody's very happy with almost everything you do. I mean, the more outrageous, the better in certain cases, because it's more intense. Your responsibilities are really, really heavy in some areas and basically zero in all other areas. It's not normal life. And so if you don't have a good foundation, and by foundation, I mean, if your childhood made your developmental progress difficult in any way, it will be almost impossible to find footing in that environment to properly continue and finish off your development. I can definitely say that's true for me and probably everybody that was in our band. Yeah. So the posies carried on and off and on and off. Yeah, exactly. Eventually releasing nine studio albums. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, you sort of joined REM. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> it was incredible, yeah. It was part of the live and studio band for nearly 10 years. I know you at least played on Reveal, is that right? Yeah, and Around the Sun, and also on R.E.M. Live. You also, I think both you and John were official members of Big Star, is that right? Also true. Starting right around this time, actually what's really crazy about that is that happened right as Frosting on the Beater was released. In fact, we played a pre-release party in Seattle. Mm-hmm for Frosting on the Beater with, you know, press and radio people being flown in and journalists being flown in from England and stuff like this. Then after that party, we got on a plane in the middle of the night and flew to Columbia, Missouri to rehearse and play the first Big Star show in almost 20 years, which itself was a huge media event. And then Frosting on the Beater came out the, a few days after that. I mean, it's totally insane times. Yeah, wow. All right, well, we should move on to our next band we're going to talk about. We're going to hear from the Trash Can Sinatras. This is a Scottish band that was formed in 1986. They put a couple singles on the modern rock charts with their debut album, but uh, we didn't talk about them on this show. Mm -hmm. And so in 1993, the band released their second album called I've Seen Everything. And we're going to hear their first single from that album. It's called Hay Fever, and it reached number 11 on the modern rock charts.
know what I felt about it? I felt like this song had all the parts that you would put into a supposedly good song. Like there were quality chord progressions or classic feels. Like it's basically to me a kind of chimera of good pieces, but good pieces don't make a song. I didn't really get the impression that there was a great emotional commitment into this song. It was seemed to be more like here's a bunch of ideas about what a good song could be, and then here's some clever lyrics. In the earlier part of the Posey's career, we're very guilty of trying to be as clever as possible, and that includes some kind of punnery. And like in this thing where he says the chocolate's watching and the cuckoos are clocking, leave me alone uh-huh. in my sulk stalking. It's their creativity. I'm sorry, that's that's really mean, but I felt like it was it was all head, and I didn't get the heart out of it, and that's why I couldn't really... I've already forgotten how it goes, you know? I mean, I, I think I feel similarly. I read a number of reviews that they described it as something along the lines of pleasantly inoffensive, and that more or less sums it up for me, too. I mean, I certainly don't hate listening to it, but um, I'm not getting the emotion from it. With some tweaks to the production, it could sound an awful lot like a, a minor... 60s British invasion hit like Herman's Hermits or The Small Faces or something. I don't know. It's got that little bouncy shuffle. Mm-hmm. I wish I had more to say about the song. I, I don't want to be mean. I mean, you're right. This is this is their work and their creativity, and it's not a bad song by any means, but it's not inspiring me, shall we say. I think that's what it is. It's, for me, it's it's got all the elements of a good song, except I don't feel that it's coming from the heart because I feel like it's really like they tried to be clever. And then it doesn't take any risks. So, like, I can't commit to it because it's not even committed to anything. I could be totally wrong. I'm sure if they were here to beat the shit out of me because they're Scottish, um, <laughs> they, you know, they would tell me exactly how much commitment they had to it, etc. Or maybe they might agree and they said, yeah, you know, maybe we look, they feel differently about it now. I don't know. I'm not in their minds, but that's what I get from it. I didn't feel any great sense of, urgency for me to commit to it because I didn't feel it coming from them. Now, I'm not going to talk too much about it, but there is another Scottish band that charted the same month. And it could be just because I was 13 years old when I first heard the song. But from the very opening guitar strum, I felt committed to the song. (laughs) And that song is I'm Gonna Be 500 Miles by The Proclaimers. Oh, yeah, well. Listening to it today, it sounds... Almost like a novelty song, although that could be my American perspective, and it's it's quite possible that if I was Scottish, uh, it wouldn't feel that way. But I don't know why. I just love the. <laughs> yeah, you can't really, yeah. uh, you can't really deny it. Of course, it was re- released much earlier, but it had a resurgence that year, right? Because of a film or something. That's right, Benny and June. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is a film I never saw. Benny and the Junes. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's move on to our fourth and final band of the episode. We're going to be talking about the Cranberries. This is a band that was formed in Limerick, Ireland in 1989. There once was a band from Limerick. They failed because they had no gimmerick. <laughs> they had many hits, and that's where it sits. Oh, that last one's going to be tough. Yeah, the last one's tough. 
But their their legend in the sky shall shimmer. Oh, very nice. I applaud you. That thank was quick. You, thank, you. thank you, thank you. I'd have to take uh, 30 minutes to write something like that, I think. I totally stepped on your intro. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay. It's worthwhile. The band was originally called the Cranberry Saw Us. Mm. And uh, the original band was brothers Noel Hogan and Mike Hogan, mm-hmm. Fergal Lawler and Niall Quinn. By 1990, Quinn had left for another band. He was a singer at the time. And knowing that the band was going to need a new singer, he introduced them to an 18-year-old friend of a friend named Dolores O'Riordan. Yeah. She took the band's demo cassette home and recorded some vocals over the music, and she returned a week later with a rough version of the song Linger, Mm. which would become the band's biggest hit. And uh, with that, she became the new lead singer of the band, and they shortened their name just to The Cranberries. After a shaky start with a poorly received EP, the band fired their manager. They hired Jeff Travis, the founder of Rough Trade Records, and they hired producer Stephen Street, and they put together their debut album, Everybody Else Is Doing It, So Why Can't We? After initially failing to attract much attention, they were halfway through a tour opening for the band Suede when MTV started playing their videos pretty heavily. And so about halfway through the tour, Cranberries and Suede actually switched positions and the Cranberries became the headliners. You know, it makes sense, but I got to say, I feel like that would hurt. (laughs) I mean, being Suede in that position, I don't know. Let me tell you that that summer was the summer where we like, we have to start renting out the opening slot for our band because it seems to be the key to everyone's success. Because that year, opening bands on the Frosting on the Beater tour included the Cranberries, Counting Crows, Blind Melon, you know, like every time we played with a band, they would be huge in like 10 days. It was like guaranteed. Wow. Much, much more successful than we ever were. Here's our Cranberry story, if you'd like to hear it. Yeah, of course. Before they were on tour with Suede, they were on tour with The The. Mm, yeah. We had a show and our agent said, hey, there's this band. They have a night off. Can they open for you in Orlando? And it turned out to be The Cranberries. And we didn't know their music at all. They, you know, It was really fresh you know um mm-hmm. at, at that time so we spent the afternoon at a go-kart track go-kart racing with cranberries which was quite fun mm-hmm. so that night at the show mike gibbons the drummer for the band badfinger who happened to be living in the orlando area came to the show and of course we're huge fans of badfinger so that was a, a big deal so we were chatting with him and we were backstage and we were talking to the cranberries I said, oh, well, you know, the drummer for Badfinger is here. I mean, I didn't know he lived here. It was a real shocker, but we're huge fans, blah, blah, blah. And um, I don't remember which member of the Cranberries, but he said, who? And I said, Badfinger, you know, like, no matter what, and uh, I can't live if living without you. And he just blank stare. And I said, you know, the B- Badfinger, they were like friends with the Beatles, and George Harrison produced their album. And he stopped and he said, look, I don't know who they are. And if I did, I wouldn't like them. (laughs) It's a great quote. Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, we're going to be listening to the first single from the album. It's called Dreams. Mm -hmm. Dreams, I was surprised to find only hit number 15 on the modern rock charts in July 1993. But here it is. It came from 
I think this is a lovely song. I really like this, and I, in fact, like it better than Linger, which I think is also a pretty good song. Yeah, it's a beautiful song, and it, and it is a Stephen Street production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful recording, I have to say. The vocals are really nice, and the the lyrics are quite good, too. I mean, it, this song came off to me back in the day. I thought it was a little bit on the light side, but it, it's it's deeper than I remember. Um, and it's a real nice production. It's really long. I mean, it's almost five minutes long once again, or four and a half, and, and it ends with this whole like vocal breakdown thing. I don't know if they did a single version or whatever, but it, there's this long ending where she's doing these kind of vocal loops almost in a way at the end. As a producer now, of course, I'd be like, we need to cut like one minute out of this song. Sure. You know, we could work those vocal things into the song a bit, you know, but back in the day, four and a half minute single, sure, why not? Yeah, I, I think I probably felt it was a little little on the wimpy side at the time as well, because, you know, it was 1993 and I was getting really excited about a lot of grunge and grunge adjacent type things. But this still slotted really well into, you know, what we can broadly call alternative music. And uh, I liked to hear it when it came on. And I, of course, you know, it introduced us to uh, a very unique voice, Dolores O'Riordan. She's doing things here that I imagine some people might find slightly irritating, but also Mm -hmm. it's unique and it's very much herself. And it's distinct in a way that when you hear her sing, you know who it is singing, which is cool. And it's not something you can say about every band. So I think one interesting thing about Dreams and also Linger is that the chart position is a bit misleading. Number 15 seems low, but these songs had real stain power and they stuck around for a long time. And is actually not until 1994, after a re-release of the singles, that they finally crossed over to the mainstream. Wow. And Linger landed at number eight on the Hot 100 in April 1994. And the album, Everybody Else Is Doing It, So Why Can't We?, ended up spending an incredible 130 weeks on the album charts and sold six million copies worldwide. Cranberries are going to go on to produce a few more hits, and we'll definitely be hearing from them in the future on this show. Unfortunately, in 2018, Dolores O'Riordan was found dead in her hotel room. That was in 2018? 2018, yep. The rest of the band, they ended up releasing the final album called In the End, using previously recorded demo vocals from O'Riordan. And after that, the band disbanded, saying that they didn't want to continue without her. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. To date, the Cranberries have sold over 50 million albums worldwide. Good gravy. I actually read that Dolores was the sixth richest woman in Ireland before her death, something like that. Well, again, I wish that she could have lived to enjoy it longer. The poor thing. I don't know anything about her story or or what happened to her or what what got her to that point. But as we were talking earlier, I think a lot of it is the things that are set forth in motion in childhood. If you're not stable when you come into this game, it's very hard to find stability within it. Sure. Well, that was our four songs for the month. I guess we should mention the mystery achievement that we played at the beginning of the episode. Mm-hmm. That was a band called Sun 60, and the song was called Merry Xmas. Yeah. Not a band I was familiar with at all. Ken, you're familiar with them, I understand. Yeah, we played with them back in the day, yeah. just You know, we had a guitar tech that was on tour with us all through the Frosting on the Beater days, Joe Norcio, and he had gone on tour with Sun 60, so he had introduced us to their music and to them, and we ended up playing a show together. And they're very, very nice people. But yeah, that's about all I can say. <laughs> yeah, and I read that Dave Navarro from Jane's Addiction and briefly Red Hot Chili Peppers 
was in that band, as well as Jack Irons, a founding member of the Chili Peppers and a one-time Pearl Jam drummer. And Red Cross. Oh, and Red Cross, yes. Oh, uh, that's how we met Jack. Cool. Well, Ken, yeah. do you have any current projects, upcoming projects, anything notable that we should mention? Yeah, well, I have a new album uh, that I've made that's coming sort of soon, 2024. Mm-hmm. I think it's certainly the most important album of my solo career. And in a way, it represents some very, very big experiences that I went through in the last couple of years, which ultimately have led me to confront and repair some of my own deficits from my own childhood and upbringing, which is the kind of things I was talking about that made navigating my career at times very challenging. You know, one of the gifts of maturity is perhaps a little more stability and courage to look into those things. And I think that is reflected in the album I've made, which I think is just a lot deeper than work I was able to do before. And hopefully it reads that way. But if you go to my Instagram, I'd love for everybody to follow me on Instagram at Ken Stringfellow. If you go to the link in my bio, you'll find that I have some upcoming listening parties. December 3rd in New York City and December 9th in Madrid. These will be secret shows. You have to go to my bio and read all the information, but basically you buy your ticket. I tell you where the venue is the day before, and then what you get is you come to a special place with a great sound system where I will preview my upcoming album for the first time because it won't be out yet. It won't be available on streaming or anything like that. You'll hear it with me on a really good stereo. Um, I'll do a Q&A about the songs and whatever else you want to talk about and play a few songs acoustic. So those are the only live shows that I have coming up in the meantime. So follow me on Instagram, at Ken Stringfellow. Check out the link in, in the bio, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And hopefully I'll see you in New York or Madrid and then next year on tour. Well, that sounds really fun. It takes so long to put a record out, I have to say, because of the, the process of making the artwork and all this stuff. And we're very DIY here, so it, it's a slow process. But I want to start sharing this music with people, but I'm not ready to just put it on the web yet. So you're going to have to listen to it with me and then we'll talk about it. Okay. Well, very cool. I'll put some links to the Instagram thing and Mm -hmm. all that other good stuff. For all of my listeners out there, if uh, you haven't already done so, if you could rate, review, and subscribe to the show, that'd be amazing. If you want to reach me, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Ken, thank you once again for joining me on the show. It was a blast. I learned so much. Me too. It's really nice to reminisce about some of these songs. Yeah. Rather than go out with the regular theme music, let's keep on the Posies theme for 1993 and hear one more Posies track. We're going to hear a clip from Solar Sister. Ken, can you tell us just a, a brief something about this song? It is a rare kind of song that's an homage to a platonic female friend. I just really wanted to celebrate a friend of mine who was going through a hard time. It it is a love song in a sense, but not a romantic love song. And there's not too many of those out there. All right. Ken, thank you. Uh, Listeners, thank you. Here we go. The Posies, Solar Sister. (laughs) 